This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. My name's Steve, if I've not met you. Um, I'm one of the elders of the church, been here for about four years with my wife, uh, Joanna. So we're in a series uh, on grace um, at the moment. Grace is God's unmerited favour for us, and we're going to explain that a little bit in a second, so don't worry too much if you don't know it yet. Um, and today we're focusing specifically on, uh, on how the Holy Spirit frees us from guilt and condemnation. Um, it's a repeated message. Um, in some ways, some things I'm going to repeat, but um, I, I had a picture coming into this, but I felt um, that was okay. I had a picture of one of those, um, uh, those tools, those uh, sticks with like the, the, um, the, the thing on the end that people use to break up concrete on surfaces. And I just feel like this message of grace is one that we need to hear maybe over and over again. And it might be that this week is the week that God breaks something in you in your heart and you really receive his grace. So that's what I feel like is going on in this. Um, and it's worth hearing this again. And, and you know, we hear the word grace um, a lot, but often I think that we, um, we might not really know what it means, or we might know what it means, but we might not really get it in our hearts. So um, Joe and I were um, our friends last weekend, and um, they, are, they, aren't, um, they aren't Christians. And um, uh, we, we said to them, what are you doing next weekend? And they said, what are you doing next weekend? I said, I'm preaching. Oh, great, what are you preaching on? I said, I'm preaching on grace. And I said, um, what are your thoughts on grace? Just to see if they give me any gold quotes. Um, and uh, the guy was like, um, so you're preaching on the prayer that you say before, bre- uh, before dinner. And um, the girl thought about it a little longer. She's pregnant at the moment. She was like, Grace is quite a nice name for a girl. Um, <clears throat> and it's, uh, you, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect people, if, you, if you're not Christian, to get grace. But actually, um, a, a lot of the time, I wonder to the full degree to which we get grace. Um, Andy uh, often says that I only get preachers on topics uh, that I really know about and like are really in me, stuff like sin and um, disobedience and condemnation. Um, and I, I definitely say that this is not like a classic Steve Moat topic. Um, but in the last three months, I really feel like God has started uh, restoring um, me from guilt and condemnation. So actually, this is a really personal message for me about work that God's been doing in me. And I think because of that, it's a really pertinent message for us as a church as well. And actually, as I've been preparing for this, I thought, this isn't just, man, this isn't just really important. This is like the thing. Like every week when we preach, you could say, guys, you, you know, there's one thing you need to get. It's this. Actually, this feels like the thing that we need to get. It's not, it's not okay for this to not be a Steve Moat topic. Steve Moat needs to get this. You guys need to get this. We need to get this. It needs to be a topic for all of us. And um, I felt convicted as I was preparing um, uh, to kind of do, uh, try and do that thing that Paul does, where he, he says, I resolve to come to you, not with clever words, but with the gospel, because I believe that the gospel has the power to change my heart, and I believe that the gospel has the power to change your hearts as well. So I, I hope you guys believe that as well. And, and to that end, I've not got any flashy quotes this week. So um, we, are, we do have key text um, today, which is in Romans 8. Last week, Howard preached to us from Romans 7. He talked to us about uh, Mr. Law. 
um, how we uh, used to be married to the law, but now we're married to grace, but how we have a tendency to go back to the law. And it's really worth listening to that on the podcast. Um, I'll reference a little bit throughout, but I won't, I won't delve into it too deeply because because Howard did that so well last week. Um, I, I'm going to read from Romans 8, verse 1 to 11, but actually the, the key verse for us is Romans 1, but we'll, we'll pop into that about halfway through the preach as well. So Romans 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In fact, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, God first, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Father, I just pray for us this morning. We thank you so much, Jesus, for the work that you did for us on the cross, the salvation you earned for us, for justification, the righteousness that you have earned for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you continue to work that out in our lives through the way that you do that in our hearts, Lord. And I pray that we would receive that message today. I pray that anyone who's feeling condemned today would go away recognising that there is no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, I said before, it's hard coming in like halfway through a series on grace because I can't like not tell people what grace are. Um, so, so in some sense, I'm going I'm to say some stuff that you might feel like, well, I hear this every week, but actually this is the message, um, and I just feel like it's really crucial. I, um, I sometimes do some training at work, and um, one of the bits uh, I do is, is, really, um, is quite complex, and there's quite a lot of detail, and I tell the people I'm training, um, I, I wish I didn't have to teach all of this first, but you, you kind of need to get this so that you can get the fruits of it at the end, and it's kind of like a similar story here. So I just want to say, don't uh, try, if you can, not to switch off. Um, try and, and sit in this because this is really key and, and building on this will really get the, um, the fruit at the end of it and I just want all of us to be on the same page with regards to grace. So it starts at the beginning, the story of grace, because the whole Bible is one big narrative, uh, if you didn't know that already. And once you get today's message, you're going to spot this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament both. Uh, but it starts in Genesis, the first book. God creates Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. They're free to walk with him. They're free to converse with him. They tend this paradise, this garden of Eden. And God gives them a warning about the one thing that they cannot do. The one thing that they cannot do is eat fruit from a tree of a knowledge uh, of good and evil. And that's, of course, the one thing that they do do. And through that, sin comes into the world. Adam, and, and the Hebrew uh, for Adam literally just means the man, is, is our representative in this sense. And he, he for, for us, he brings sin into mankind. And you might think, well, that's not fair. I didn't vote for Adam uh, to be a representative for me, or you know, maybe I would have sinned. But actually, the reality is, is like we all sin. We all sin. We all would have sinned 
that you don't have to teach someone to sin. Our, our daughter, who's two, uh, when she's about to do something that we tell her not to do, she tells us to get out of the room. She says, Daddy, go for a walk. Like, I didn't teach her to do that. My wife, I don't think, taught her. Unless one of you guys came around and taught her, she just she knows how to sin. We sin. So we sin. And this is important because sin at its essence is us separating ourselves from God, whether it's through worship or time or negligence or weakness. So we find ourselves separated from God and actually we find it's not a very pleasant place to be. Like, ah, oh, God, you gave me free will and I chose to use it to, uh, to do something you said not to. But actually I find myself quite uncomfortable. Now I feel like ashamed and now I feel guilty. So how do we get it back? Well, if you read on through the Bible, God gives the law to the people of Israel, to the Hebrews, his people. In, uh, in Exodus, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he gives them additional laws on top of that. And if you keep reading through, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of law have added all of these additional laws onto it. It's like there's this, you do this, and you don't do that, and you do this, and you don't do that, and you do this, and you don't do that, all to make sure that we don't sin. It's like God has says, okay, you want to eat from the fruit, uh, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, well, here's what's right and wrong. Here's the standard of holiness. That's what the law does. It shows us what is right and wrong. And and in itself, it's not bad. But Romans 7 tells us that sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of uh, coveting. It's almost kind of like by knowing what is right and wrong, that's when we start doing the wrong thing. I remember when um, when uh, when I was younger, I'm a Man United fan, still. Um, I, uh, Man United beat Ipswich 9-0, and it was amazing. And I remember, like, like la- yeah, I remember lapping it up, like, in the newspaper, like, reading about all these goals and stuff. And I read with delight, but it said that it was Man United's biggest win since they'd, be- since they'd beaten Wolverhampton Wanderers 10-1, because there was this guy at school who I didn't really like. He supported Wolves, so I was just delighted. So I just go in on, on the Monday, and I say to him, Andy, did you see the Man United result? And he's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and then I was like, did you know it was Man United's biggest win since they beat Wolverhampton Wanderers 10-1? And there was just this part of me that was like, what happens if he doesn't believe me? Like, I really want him to believe me so that I can really hit home. So I was like, do you believe me? And the moment that I said, do you believe me? He was like, no, <laughs> why would you say that? And that's what it's like. As soon as the law says what is good and what is bad, like it affords this ability for you to, to take what is bad. And so the law actually ends up being a burden. But what's interesting is that the law was never meant to save. So we're talking about how we've been separated to God. It was never meant to save. If you think about it, I'm assuming that most of us here are Christians. If you think about it, most of us, you weren't saved through the law. It's not because of the law that you're saved. It's not like at some point you were randomly, before you were a Christian, reading through Deuteronomy, and you shall do this, and you shall not do this, and you're like, huh, I am saved. Or it's not like that you were working really hard for the law, and through that work, you just, oh my goodness, I'm saved, like I get it. But the law was never meant to save us. Instead, we're told in Romans chapter 3 that no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's what the law was sent to do. It was sent to show us what is right, what is wrong, and how sinful we actually are. Try as hard as you like by by wanting to save yourself through the law. We find that Adam still represents us here, but sin is still in humanity. But the law didn't just show us what sin is and that we are sinful, but it also showed us that we needed a saviour. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And that makes sense. If the law wasn't sent to save us, but the law was sent to show us how sinful we are, and actually the law, but by trying to obey it, and by trying to obey that additional law, and by trying to obey all these extra laws that the Pharisees had, we still can't save ourselves. It was never meant to save us. It was meant to point us to the fact that we need a saviour. We need another way of being saved. 
And Romans continues, Now God, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus, God's own son who was fully God, who was fully man. It was prophesied that he was come all the way throughout the Old Testament. And he does come and he comes into this environment of intense slavery to the law where people are separated from God and they, they desperately want to save themselves, but they don't know how and they can't and they're adding these more law to it. And he comes into that, but Jesus gets that the law doesn't save. Jesus gets that the law doesn't save because he knows his scripture. In Matthew 5 verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that would have been crazy to the people hearing it, because the people hearing it would have been like, oh my goodness, there there is no one who was more righteous with regards to the law than the Pharisees and the rulers. And and it it would have felt like impossible. I, I I mean, they're creating new laws to make sure that they're righteous. It was impossible for me to be more righteous than that. But their righteousness was based on the law and on adding new law, and the law cannot say and that's what Jesus meant. He wasn't saying you need to be more legalistic than them. He was saying, actually, your righteousness needs to surpass that that the law can provide for you. And Jesus showed them. Jesus' relationship to the law was, was twofold. In one sense, he was totally innocent to the law. Okay? So the law shows you what's good and bad, and if, and if you manage to keep the law all the way on goodness and, and on badness, um, then, then I suppose you are right before God. But we couldn't do that, but Jesus could. Jesus, who took on the body of a, 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 a flesh, which meant that he was susceptible to all the temptations we are, but he never fell for the temptations. He lived a completely innocent life, a life that we could not have lived. And his second part of the relationship to the law was he was a substitute to the law. In, in, in the times of Jesus, the, the Israelites were still having to get the priests to make sacrifices for them so that they were right before God. They, they took a goat, it would literally be called a, a, it was called a scapegoat. He put his hand on it, all the sin of the people would go into the goat and then they would send it away. Jesus became that scapegoat. They would take a lamb and sacrifice it for my sins to be taken away. Jesus became that sacrificial lamb. Once and for all on the cross, he took our sin upon himself and imparts to us his identity as a child of God who has full access to God. 2 Corinthians 5 said, God made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness means means being right with God. So we've gone from Adam and his sin, which gets imparted to us. Is that fair? Well, yeah, it probably is because we do sin. Then our sin goes to Jesus. Is that fair? No, it's not. He's taking it for us. And then Jesus' righteousness goes to us. Is that fair? That's an absolute scandal. So Jesus has died for our sins. We've got his righteousness. That sounds amazing. He's taken away our bad stuff. He's given us good stuff. How do we get this? Do I sign up a direct debit somewhere? Do I have to move country? Do I have to follow some laws? Do I do some work? Do I have a different type of law? No, it's not like Jesus has cleared our debts, but now we have to obey the law to stop them building up again. Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified. And instead, we're told that through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Faith. Faith is the way that we access this incredible grace, this scandalous grace. Faith is being sure of what you do not know. This is how I explain it to my non-Christian friends when I say I have faith. I say, listen, I, I have faith, and what faith means is that like, I am sure I, that what I, what I believe is true. I know, I know, I know that it is for truth, but I appreciate it, but I can't scientifically prove that to you. That's what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we do not know. All right, so you need faith. So you do have to do something to earn grace. 
No, it's still a free gift that you receive. One of my colleagues at work last week bought donuts for the whole team, and he said, if you want a donut, there's a donut on my desk for you. So I went around because I did want a donut, and I took him up. And what I didn't say then was like, I have earned myself a donut. He still bought that for me as a free gift. Like, yeah, I had to say, yes, please, I would like the donut. But it was still a free gift which he paid for for me. Romans 4 verse 5 says, to the one who doesn't work, this is great, to the one who doesn't work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Your faith is the thing that is credited as righteousness, not to the one who works but the one who trusts God and in them you are justified. Justification in this sense is is kind of like a legal transaction, It's, it's that moment where God says, okay, your sins are no more and instead you're getting the righteousness of God. It's like a judge in a courthouse saying, bang, you are justified. All the charges brought against you don't matter, you are justified. This is good news. This is the good news. This is good news. And it doesn't just mean uh, that, that we are saved, that someone has come and cleared our debts, but now we have to stay on top of our finances. But actually, it means that we are saved forever. Our righteousness is assured forever. We do not need to impress God because we have found one whom God is already impressed with. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. Romans 5 verse 17 says, we reign in life. This is like the biblical version of saying hashtag winning. This is what that means. We reign in life. If you get this, this is true every day. If you get this every day, you should feel like every day, I reign in life. I am hashtag winning. Like, man, nothing can stick against me. This is incredible. This is what it means to be a Christian. You might not know that. You might have thought, you know, but it meant that you have to live a certain way, that you have to obey the rules, the do's and the don'ts. It doesn't. It means that we are right before the one God and do an eternal life in paradise, which is going to make this short time on the earth seem trivial, both in terms of length and consequences, and we do not have to work for it. Yes. Our heart should say yes to this. Our heart should be excited by this. You should recognize that actually this is a good thing. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, I imagine that you can understand feelings of insignificance or guilt or shame, which we would say is are tied up with sin, and that the idea of them being washed away, not because there's a formula by which you can do it, but because someone takes them away for you, sounds pretty good. But even if you know this already, or if maybe like this truth has been restirred in you this morning, doesn't something in our experience say, if only I felt like that were true? You're saying I've been freed from sin and given Christ's righteousness, but I do not feel like I'm hashtag winning. Why? Why do we feel that way? Why do we not live in the reality that Jesus has died for our sins once and for all, and we did it for free, and as Romans 8 says, if we believe in him, we are counted as justified and righteous. Well, it's because even though Galatians 2 verse 19 says we are dead to the law, we return to Mr. Law. How I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to talk about it loads. Sometimes it starts as a subtle thing or we think for the right reasons. Oh my goodness, I've won this salvation. Yep, that is an amazing truth. So I'm going to get hold of my life. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to pray loads. I'm going to pray three times a day. I don't care. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm a stickler for this. Traditionally, what I've always done is around January as I've reviewed the last year of my life and then set myself like a 12-month plan. And within that 12-month plan, which is split into six different sections, there's a three-month plan with details about how I'm going to do it because I am going to get a hold of my life. It's almost like I kind of like, I get, it's almost kind of like we, I, I, I get that this is a wonderful truth, but I'm going to set these laws up to make sure that I can activate that truth. But I'm adding more law to myself. It's like I'm saying to Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that it is for freedom that you have set me free, but actually I'm still a slave. This is what I'm like, guys. This is what I am like. Work, family, and church. I'm never happy after a successful event because I'm already thinking about the next one. I'm always thinking about how I can self-approve. 
thank you, Jesus, for setting me free, but I'm still a slave. It's like, it's like I, say to, it's like I get, say to God, like, I recognize that now you've given me this grace, and it is not through my works, but it is through, like, faith, and it's through the work you've done. But, Jesus, I know what you really want. What you really want from people is for me to, like, carry something for the Lord. Don't worry. Don't worry, Jesus. I am good enough. I'm a big enough man to both be able to live here, but also do some of the law, because the law is what you really want me to do, Jesus. I know you're a hard taskmaster, and I start living like this. And for ages, I've just thought this is okay. I just thought, you know, like, that's my cross to carry. I just thought, like, well, I know it's not ideal, but, like, don't worry, I can still recognize it whilst doing this law thing as well. But actually, it's not okay. It's not okay, Steve. Galatians 5 verse 4 says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. I don't realize that's what I'm doing. I'm thinking like, no, I'm still living in the grace. It's just I'm doing some of the law things because Jesus wants it and to do it. But actually what I'm doing is I'm living under the law and I'm being severed from grace. It's not okay. You should read Galatians if you want to hear more about this story because this is exactly what this is about. Paul writing to a church who got it. He preached the gospel to them. They understood grace, but then they try and go under law. And he says to them, you foolish Galatians, who has so bewitched you? Did you forget, Steve? Did you forget God first, that you were not saved by the law? This is the message Paul gives to the Galatians. Jesus is the way. If there were more to it, he would have told us. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. But I think he probably means he needs some of this as well. You do not need a way to the way. My default in this, this is why it's been such a big issue for me and why God's really been speaking into it for me, is that for ages I've just called myself a legalist. I get that this isn't okay, but I'm just a legalist. And what I mean by that is I recognize that even though grace is free, that I have a tendency to work for it. And I'm like, oh, it's just my cross to carry. Like, I'm just a legalist. Steve, Steve, Steve. But actually, it's just, it's as bad as saying anything else. It's like, I love the Lord. I love grace. I just happen to be a murderer. I'm just a murderer. Like, I just, (laughs) I just murder people. It's not okay. And this is what I'm about. You know, I, I've lived under that. I've lived under this thing of being a legalist. Steve's a legalist. It's my problem. So I guess I'm always going to be a legalist. But actually, in the last few months, I've just realized that I can't do it all. And it makes me feel like a failure when I'm trying to do it all. I want to be a better elder. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better husband. I want to be better at my job. And I can't. I just, I can't, I just can't do it all. I just can't do all the things that I want to do. I can't do it all. It's like I'm trying to work for my salvation. It's like the good news isn't enough. It's like I, I don't believe that the law has fully gone. Like, I, Lord, I hear this, but I read other stuff as well, so I, I just don't think all the law is gone. It's like I have to do something to validate my existence, to get into God's favor, to ultimately to go to heaven. If we don't understand and wholeheartedly embrace the gift of righteousness that God has freely given us, we are always going to be vulnerable to Satan's pointed finger of accusation in this area. It's us too. Flesh is a problem as well, like our spirits are being renewed, but actually we're going to get given new bodies when Jesus comes. That's, that's what we're told, so our flesh is fighting against us as well. But we have to recognize that spiritual warfare is going on as well. We have to recognize, you know, we're, we're told if God is for us, who can make an accusation against us? Well, Satan is the one who makes accusations against us. He is called the accuser. We're told that he's prowling around us day and night. We're, called that he, we're told that he is accusing us day and night. See, what happens is, I'm saved, like, I th- oh my goodness, I'm saved, it's incredible, Lord, thank you for your salvation, this is incredible, like, and in my, I've won this freedom now, like, I, I feel so free for the first time, and it's like, in my freedom, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing this with my life, and I'm going to start doing this with my life, and I'm going to start doing this with my life, and, you know, I've met that person, and they're like, uh, they're less mature than I am, so I'm going to help them, and there's this person, like, I really want to help them, so I'm going to help them too, and, and suddenly, it starts to feel like a burden, and suddenly, 
All of these ideas are still coming to me about the things that I should live my life for, but rather than feeling like they're coming out of a pace of like love or out of peace or out of freedom, it feels like it's an accusation. It feels like you should be doing this. You should be doing this. And suddenly it's a case of like, I should be doing this. I should be helping that person. And suddenly it's a case of, uh, you know, I hear a challenging talk and now I think, oh, I should do this. And now I'm so deep into my disciplines, but it would feel like I lack integrity if I don't do this discipline as well. And that person is doing really well. Have you heard that person's praying with their neighbor? Oh my goodness, I need to pray with my neighbor. And that person looks on fire for the Lord. So I shoot up my game so that I can be on fire with it. And it's not just spiritual practices. If you're a non-Christian and you just think, man, Christians are cray-cray, or this one is. It's, it's other things as well. Oh my goodness, look at that family. Look at how their kids are doing this. I should be doing that. Like that person is running ahead with this career. Oh my goodness, I just found out how much that person earns. Shouldn't I be doing that as well? And suddenly I find that I can't do it anymore and I drop something. Or someone asks me, are you also doing this spiritual discipline? Because you look like you should be because you're pretty spiritual. And it's like I can't bear the fact that he thinks I should be and that I think that he thinks that I should be. And in that moment I'm just like, "Mm -hmm," like that. And in that moment, in that moment of dropping something or of lying or of coming to the end of myself, the accuser who's been telling me that I should be doing these things pops in and he says, you sinner, you liar, you failure. And at the moment, I find myself condemned. See, condemnation is two things. Condemnation is, is guilt. Guilt itself can be two things. I think guilt can be holy. We've sinned. We are guilty. And we are forgiven. We're told that God's kindness leads to repentance. But guilt can also be this negative, oppressive force which slips in when we forget that we are saved, not by works, but by the work of Jesus and through faith in that. It's like I'm close to God, I'm close to God, and then I'm doing all these things, I'm doing all these things, I'm in legalism, and then like suddenly I sin, and then suddenly I get this condemnation between me. The same accuser who's telling me that I should be doing all these things is going like, you've sinned, you have fallen, you have failed, you have broken grace. I hope you're not intending on going to God today because he does not want to hear from you right now. And I feel this. This monologue is my story often. Honestly, the weight of condemnation. I have felt this. I have lived in this. And guys, I'm tired of it. I remember once, just a couple of examples, like once I, I remember like I was berating myself about something and um, I saw this picture of it. I was just like self-flagellating myself, which is this, um, it's, uh, flagellation is this uh, kind of medieval Catholic practice of um, they whipped themselves or beat themselves, literally drawing blood to get rid of the sin in their life. And like I saw that I was just doing this to myself. I remember this one time when we, when we were newly married, we didn't have very much money back then, and I just, um, I, I was worrying about it one day when I was coming home from work, walking home from work, and I just heard, the reason you don't have much money is because you are stupid with money. And I suddenly realised, actually, I'm not stupid with money, like, I, I budget, like, I tithe, like, we just don't have very much money, and, I, I, and for ages I've been telling myself, or, or believing the lie, you are stupid, it's your fault, it's your fault. And I was like 45 minutes away from, from home, like walk, I used to walk up a hill everywhere in Sheffield. I just started crying. This is what happens. This is how condemnation works. But condemnation is also a legal transaction. It's the judge finding you guilty. It's the judge saying, I've listened to the case and you are condemned. You are going to prison. It's not just a feeling. It's also a legal transaction. And where have we heard about legal transactions before already? Justification. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. You cannot be both condemned and justified. And this is where the clouds need to part over your heads, you who feel condemned, because in Romans 8 verse 1, we are told that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's nice. No bad feeling. Nope. 
There is now no legal judgment against you that finds you guilty. Jesus has taken your sins and dealt with them. He has taken them as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has taken our sins from us. And he has given us Jesus' righteousness. And all we need to do is believe it. Yeah, but like, believe it and live a different way. Nope. Yeah, but surely there's a catch. Nope. Yeah, but you can't be saying that sin doesn't matter anymore. Sin still matters, but with regards to your justification and your righteousness, you could walk out this door and go to the nearest grass which has a do not walk on it sign and walk on it whilst dishonouring your parents on the phone. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. Guys, I said about flagellation, I would mock, flog and crucify myself emotionally over things that I perceived as going wrong in my life. But I don't need to do that because Jesus has gone that through, me, through that for me. He took my condemnation and he gave me justification. Do you get it? Do you get the scandal of grace? God's not telling us to go steal and dishonour our parents and neither am I, but we'll hold on to some of those thoughts for next week. But you need to know that you cannot be condemned and justified at the same time. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the judge has made his call on that one. It's like the judge is listening to all these accusations against you and all the sin that's coming out of you and he says, yeah, but when I look at you, I see Jesus. Bang goes the gavel. He says, you are justified. You are not condemned. I've got to make a decision one way or another and I've made my decision for all time. You are justified. You are not condemned. When you wake up tomorrow, he will still be your righteousness before you have done anything to deserve God's favour. And even after you've done something that actively feels like you don't deserve God's favour, he will still be your righteousness. It's a scandal. It is a scandal because we do deserve condemnation. There are still things in us that are worthy of condemnation, but God says that they are dealt with through the work of Jesus on the cross, and all we must do is believe. And it's not just the transaction of Jesus taking and paying for our sins, but it's his righteousness that's imparted to us. It's not like God regrets the decision that he's made. It's not like God is grudging. Oh, do you know what? I really wish that I hadn't hit that gavel and justified Steve because he just goes on sinning. I hope he doesn't have the gall to come before me today. No, we are told that we can approach the throne of grace with righteousness. God is pleased with us. He looks at us and he sees what our sins are dealt with, and he sees that we are righteous because we have Jesus' righteousness. God, first, we do not need to add any works to our lives to receive our justification because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as for the accuser, as for the one who is constantly telling us what we should do and as soon as we don't doing it, saying you are, you are a failure, who suggests, why not just, okay, fine, I've read my Bible too, he says, like I know that that grace thing is true, but why don't you just put in like a little framework to make sure you do it? And then the moment you slip in that framework, he says, wasn't it, maybe it was actually God that put that framework in because it was just about receiving grace, so actually you failed again. He is condemned, and he that is condemned can neither successfully accuse nor rule. His testimony is null and his authority is null. We've been told that sin has been condemned in the flesh. The damning and domineering power of sin is condemned. It's like accuser and sin, say this to us, but actually, accuser and sin, you are the ones, you are the ones, accuser, you are the one who is shameful. The accuser is the one who is weak, pathetic, incapable of doing what he wants to do, and ultimately incapable of changing the world. It's like, imagine that court scene again where, you know, you're the one who's in the dock, oh my goodness, like, I hope he doesn't condemn me, but I know I'm worthy of condemnation, and the the devil is there accusing you as well in Jesus, and, and, and God, the judge, just says, like, yeah, but I look at him, and all his sins are dealt with, and I just see the righteousness of Jesus. He is justified. Actually, accuser, you are the one who is condemned. And it's, imagine the devil being kind of bound up and taken away, and eventually he will be, and, and him kind of like pointing at you and going, you're the one who's going to prison. No, mate, you're the one who's going to prison. We are justified. There is no condemnation for us. And it's not like he can kind of like creep around as you go out and celebrate and go in that back room with the judge and say, do you realise what you've done? 
He justifies Steve. Do you, you realize he's going to go on sinning? It's not like he can say that because we're told that Jesus, once he performed the work on the cross, is now sat at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. It's like Satan comes in and tries to say some more stuff, accusing God to you. It's like, have you heard about that? Oh, Jesus is here. He cannot accuse us. So God says that we are justified and righteous, and actually the accuser is powerless. Guys, it's not just that we are not condemned. It is that there is no possibility of us being condemned. Isaiah 50 says, He who vindicates me, that's the Lord, is near. The Lord is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Well, actually, we know that someone we know will. We know that the accuser will. Do you know what? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They who condemn me are all going to wear out like a garment. The moss will eat them up. Who will it condemn me if the sovereign Lord is with me? It is good news, it is the good news, and it is true. And how do we get this? We've affirmed that this is true. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, says the song. But I'm worried that this, this knowledge is slipping away again. It might be that you feel free from this, or, or, or for the first time you've seen some clouds move and you feel like, man, I don't need to be condemned. This is one of those cases where we need to recognize that biblical truth trumps experience every time. We need to be people who learn to read the Bible, believe the Bible, and believe the whole Bible. It's not okay for us to read the Bible and go like, well, well, I know that bit's true because I've experienced it before, but I've not experienced that bit before. My experience isn't like that, so I'm going to assume that the Bible is wrong. We need to know that the Bible is true. And that sounds a little bit like, well, how can that happen? We just need to learn to be people to do it. When something is true that you didn't previously realize is true, you just have to start believing it. For the first three months of my time at God First, I didn't realize that you weren't allowed to bring coffee into the auditorium. It might be the first time you're finding it out now, in which case, just put it underneath your chair. But then Andy told me, you realize you're not allowed to take that in. And suddenly I realized that was true. So I just stopped taking it in because that's the truth. We just need to start living as if the truth is true. Romans 8, verse 2 and 3 says, The law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God first, you are dead to sin and death. Do you know, the Bible says that you are not even a habitual sinner anymore. 1 John 3 verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he can, cannot keep on sinning because he's born of God. And you might think, well, Steve's living in a dream world. Did he just say I'm not a habitual sinner? It must have been someone else who gossiped again at work or who you know, thought about whatever it was. But it's truth over experience. We need to say, I'm not a habitual sinner. It's not, okay. it's not okay for me to say I'm a legalist. No, no. It says I'm not a habitual sinner. It says that, that is not the truth. I need to start believing the truth and knowing it to be true. And when the accuser who comes in and says it's not true, you are a habitual sinner, we need to refuse him. We, you need to be a refuser of the accuser. We need to refuse him. God isn't being tricked here. He doesn't think you never sin. He's saying your sins have been taken away and that he's given you what you need to pursue sanctification, which is the last big word we'll say today, which just means kind of being made holy before him. So is it like a mind over matter thing? He talks about setting our minds on the spirit, so that's important. But we're told that if we set our mind on the spirit, we have life and peace, but it is the spirit who does that. It's not just a mind over matter thing. You cannot generate this yourself. It's the spirit in you. We're told in Romans 8 that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is within us. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He raised the man from the dead to defeat sin. And he is in you. If you're in Christ, he is in you. He is the one who's changing you. It's not a mind over matter thing. How do we get our justification? Not through the law, which could not do it because the flesh made it weak, but through the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. We receive pardon and a new nature under a new covenant, free from the guilt and power of spin. Guys, you are justified. You are righteous. 
And the Holy Spirit says in you that your identity is no longer that of being a sinner. In fact, with regards to your identity, we are told that we aren't given a spirit of slavery, but we are given one of sonship that cries out, Abba, Father. Abba just means Daddy, Abba, Father. Why both those words together? Who else prayed Abba, Father? Jesus. We are given a spirit that leads us to pray the same thing Jesus did because we are being made into children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I pray... I read the Bible, I come to church, I meet with other Christians, on occasion I fast. How does that work? Oh, grace, we're going to touch on that more another time. But what you need to know this morning is that we are children of God. We are justified for all time. We are made righteous for all time, and there is no condemnation for us. If you are feeling condemnation this morning, it's from the accuser. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that in, in John 3:17, Jesus says, "God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We don't need to sacrifice because He was the sacrifice for us.) For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.